When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad you're here. Today we have nine questions, um, a ton of things about therapy itself. We're going to talk a little bit about depressive symptoms and what those could mean or not mean, complex PTSD, autism spectrum disorder, all sorts of stuff opening up in therapy. You get the gist. Without further ado, let's jump into this first question. And it says, hi, Katie, I just started to trust and open up to my therapist. And I recently shared my deepest traumas. I'm so proud of you. I know how hard that is. I am still not able to speak about them, but I finally, quote unquote, told someone, at least in writing, It's taken me about a year to get to this point with my therapist, but now she's suggesting spacing out my appointment. What? Wait. Spacing out my appointments because I am more stable and have already talked or processed my traumas. What? For more context, I struggle with anxiety, ADHD, and was diagnosed with PTSD as a teen. And I'm not sure if that diagnosis is still current because my therapist doesn't focus on labels. I'm very frustrated already. Okay. But I still have frequent nightmares. I still jump out of my skin when men walk in unannounced. And I still have an internal war trying to push aside bad memories and feelings, along with many other symptoms that I've experienced since I was an adolescent. I thought trauma therapy was a long process. And she knows I still struggle with multiple sexual assault traumas, betrayal traumas, and childhood emotional abuse. Could it be, could it be that this is it? No. Is this the way I feel? the most quote-unquote healed I'm ever going to get? Or am I struggling with this suggestion because I still need to work more on my traumas? I think that is more correct. After working so hard to trust her, her suggestion made me feel like she only wanted me to spill the tea, to know the juicy stuff. Why would a therapist suggest cutting back after finally building the therapeutic relationship? Also, you've helped, oh, you've helped me a lot, by the way. You show care, compassion, and how you normalize mental health and answer all of our questions with transparency and honesty. Thank you for demystifying the role of therapists and mental health in general. Of course, I'm glad I could be there. Okay, now there's a lot to unpack here. And the first component that bothers me is the fact that you only were able to do it in writing. You haven't been able to talk it through, nor have you been able to actually talk it out without it stirring up emotion in you, without it being charged, as they call it, emotionally charged. Now, if you don't recall, I did a video on my main YouTube channel with my friend, Dr. Alexa Altman, who's a trauma specialist. She does EMDR, somatic experiencing, all sorts of trauma work. And she talked about the importance of that, our ability to talk through a traumatizing experience and not be dysregulated or overwhelmed by it. Do you know what I mean? Like that wanting to jump out of our skin, the hypervigilance, the dissociation that could come along with it, the panic attacks, all that stuff. We should be able to talk through these bad and traumatizing memories without any of that happening. And it sounds to me like you aren't able to do, you haven't even been able to say it out loud. You're only able to write it. And I'm curious, and this is kind of the gist I got from the comments below too. I am curious if your therapist is actually a trauma therapist because they clearly don't know what they're talking about. 
and I don't mean I don't mean any harm to them. I don't not saying like, oh, they're shitty at their job altogether, but they might not be the best at trauma work because I do find, and I've said this with eating disorder, I'm an eating disorder specialist for those of you who don't know. I work specifically with eating disorders, uh, self-injury, and a lot of BPD. That's what my practice was in Santa Monica. That's what I've treated throughout, I don't even know, like what has it been, 17 years or something, 16 years that I've been practicing. Um, anyways, long story short, a lot of people will say, oh, yeah, I specialize in eating disorders and they don't fucking know what they're doing. And it's like they want all because it, it's a business. And so they want to get all the patients that they possibly can. And you'll see this list of like specialties and it's crazily long. Now, a therapist should be able to treat a lot of different issues like anxiety, depression, relational problems, marriage issues, you know, not to say those are like more general, but those are things that were trained in school. Those are kind of like super common mental illnesses. So a lot of people are able to treat them. However, specializing in something is a whole nother level. And I would argue requires not just continuing education units, while all those are helpful, it's like classes we take as therapists, but you need to work in the field in some intensive way. Meaning if you're going to say that you specialize in trauma, I honestly and earnestly believe that you should have some other credentials like uh, ability being like, I don't know, credentialed in EMDR or somatic experiencing or worked in a trauma treatment center. I think that there needs to be more to it when people say they specialize. Otherwise, we're going to end up in situations like this where you've only been able to write out what happened to you and your therapist is like, oh, we don't need to see it. You're more stable now. They don't know what's going on. This is honestly just poor therapist work. Um, so my my advice for you would be to push back a little if you can. And that's the thing that sucks is because I know when we have trauma in our past, it's really hard for us to advocate for ourselves or speak up, but that's really what you could use right now. And so I would push back and tell them, no, I'm not more stable. I'm still having a lot of trouble. I've only been able to write it out to you and I haven't ever told anybody else and I've never said it. If you can get that out in some form or another, even if you can write it and give it to them or email it or whatever, um, I would encourage you to tell them that. And I'm fine with them not really being focused on labels, but it's also fair for you to ask, hey, do you still think I have PTSD? By the way, my, I suspect that you do. Just the symptoms you named and listed here in this question to me seem very much PTSD-like related. I don't know about the anxiety and ADHD because that's not what we're speaking to here, but it's important for you to at least know what she still thinks you have. Now, that doesn't mean she has to focus on labels and you have to talk about it forever, but if it is something that you're diagnosed with or this is what you're focusing on, you sh she should be able to talk to you about it. You should know for sure what, it, what the diagnosis is. Um, and I hate that you felt like, you know, that she just wanted to know the juicy stuff. I'm so sorry. That's so invalidating and, and can feel so... I don't know, what's the word, like exploitive, you know, almost like you were exploited in some way. And that's the last thing you need, especially when you've had all that trauma. So I really think we need to push back. We potentially need to find a therapist who is a trauma, actual trauma specialist, like finding someone who does other trauma-based modalities. Like I said, somatic experiencing, EMDR, schema, attachment-based therapists even. Because people saying they're like trauma-informed, which is where I'd even put myself, I'd put myself in that camp, you guys. Like, I'm not a specialist in trauma. I don't want to pretend to know, you know, as much as my friend Alexa. But I I do know that I'm better than this therapist. And I do understand trauma a little bit more probably because I did all that research for my book. But, you know, we need to find someone who can actually meet us where we're at and bring us over the finish line in a real way. Because 
trauma work, like you said, it, it's more long term. It usually takes longer. It's a longer process. Not always. I don't want anybody to think it's always going to be lengthy, but it usually is because it's hard. Like you said, you just started to trust and open up to your therapist. So that's honestly what takes the longest time is just us getting to a place where we feel like we can trust and open up and then being able to stay regulated, meaning not dissociated, not overwhelmed while we talk about it. And that practice, it's like we're building new muscles. It takes time, you know, um, and building that therapeutic relationship is the the first step. So yes, you've successfully accomplished that first step, but no, you should not be spacing out appointments. I would even argue that as we start to open up, sometimes we need more appointments. I've had a ton of patients over the years who, when we finally start working through something, need to come in twice a week because now we've kind of opened it up and they have a lot more to share and they're feeling like they need more assistance with that regulation and they need more support as they vent it through. Does that make sense? So keep me posted. I'm so sorry that you've had that experience. You are correct that this is not like you're not where you need to be. This is not you healed. This is you just beginning that process. Um, I'm glad that you feel like you can speak to your therapist and talk to them, trust them enough to share. I would encourage you to share with them that you're not better and that you need more support. Okay. Because it can get better. We just need to Again, it just takes time and we need to have the right therapist on our side moving us along as we process through slowly but surely. Let's move on to question number two. Now, question number two says, hey, Katie, I hope you're well. I am. I hope you're well. Why am I still angry and resentful at the world after being bullied? Hmm. I'm 21 now and was severely bullied between the ages of 11 and 18. And I still struggle with anger and trust issues with everybody that I meet. I would go as far as to say that I have a disorganized attachment style. That's possible. My parents were unaware of what was happening at the time, and our relationship was also turbulent. I could never really rely on anybody but myself, and I still struggle with this as well. Thanks, and hopefully this isn't a silly question and it makes sense. It totally makes sense, and it's not silly at all. I have a couple of things here. Now, the fact that you think you have a disorganized attachment style and the fact that your parents it doesn't sound like we're there for you in a real way, right? They didn't even know that you were severely bullied. And if your parents had been supportive and loving and caring, they would have first noticed changes in you when this was happening and also gone to the school and like taken action to get you support. And you would have wanted to tell them it would have gone totally different. Um, Like I've assisted a few patients, I think three or four, three, um, deal with this kind of thing at school. You guys know I mainly see adults, but I've seen a few teens here and there just because I felt for them and a few of them were going through bullying. So all that to say that I think it's a it's a big combination of things happening here. We can talk back to you growing up probably feeling a little neglected, sounds especially emotionally neglected because you were severely bullied and your parents weren't there for you and you didn't feel safe to tell them or whatever, right? There's something going on. So we never had that support. So that affects our attachment style. That also affects our relationships as we go out into the world and could cause us to feel angry and resentful, right? What the fuck, right? Where were you? You know, to your parents, like, how come you weren't there for me? And how come my teachers weren't there for me? And nobody helped and blah, right? We can feel very angry and very upset because if you don't remember, anger is a secondary or a protective emotion. Now, it comes to our, it's like puffer fishing. It comes to our aid when we feel hurt or vulnerable to more hurt and we're scared. So we stick our spines out. Yeah anger to protect, right? And that's why usually when I've always hated this, but I'll be really angry at someone and I'll cry. 
It's the worst, you guys, the fucking worst. But I do that because I'm hurt. My anger is actually me being hurt, but I want to pretend to be tough, right? Because that's more protective. That feels safer. It's the way that our bodies react. It's that fight flight. We go into that fight. Anger is fight. So it's protecting us. It's like, lash out, snap back, get in their face. And then they'll, then they'll stop or they'll apologize or they'll make it right. And then I won't feel so icky, right? So hurt, so vulnerable, so bleh. And so you feeling angry and resentful, I think, is really because you're still wounded from childhood slash bullying. And also give yourself a little, like somebody mentioned this in the comments below, it's only been a couple of years. Yeah, it's only been three years since the bullying stopped. If you haven't been in therapy to start processing it through and getting support, you're still in it. It's hard. People were shitty to you. Of course you have anger and trust issues with everybody you meet because people hurt you. And we aren't going to be able to process that through without some therapeutic support. And if you hear growling, it's my dog, Roxy. She doesn't like those bullies either. But I really think that that's what's happening here. That's why you're still angry and resentful. We haven't been able to process it through. And so my encouragement for you would be to, if you're 21, I don't know if you're in college, colleges offer free therapy. A lot of them do. You have to ask. That's how I got into therapy at that age because I couldn't have afforded it at all. We could get free therapy that way. We could uh, get uh, better help. I've partnered with them throughout the years. I have a link in the description. You get a discount um, if you use my code. That's a cheap way to get some support. There's also a talk space. You can text for free to its trained crisis counselors, so they're not therapists, but you can text to the crisis text line, 741741. There are also free online groups through Hope, the number four, recovery. I think it's .org. Um, you can find them online and see if there's any groups that line up with what you're going through. Um, but those are just some, and if anybody else has any resources that are low cost or free, leave them in the comments. I also used to work at this place in LA called the Center for Individual and Family Counseling, the CIFC. We offered low cost therapy to people. I mean, I saw people for free for 20 bucks, all sorts of different things. Um, so look in your area, if you're in Los Angeles, you can look, that's in the North Hollywood area, but you can look in your area for low cost therapy so that we can get you support so you can process this through. Because essentially, you were traumatized and you were abused by your parents through emotional neglect at the very least, if not pure neglect. Um, and we have a lot to work through. We have a lot to process. And of course, you're angry and resentful. I would be too. It's okay. We just need to get some help so we can work our way through it, Okay. Not a silly question again. Totally makes sense. I hope that my answer is helpful. Hang in there. It does get better. As we start to regulate our nervous system, meaning having coping skills and ways to calm our system down, having more supports, those spines from us puffer fishing, that anger and resentment will slowly retract and we can feel calmer. And we might be sad. We might grieve the loss of like middle school and high school, right? It, it's hard and bullying is a trauma. And so allow yourself the time needed to process through. Okay, let's move on to question number three. Question number three says, hello, Katie. Hello. From childhood on, I've been playing fake scenarios in my head before I fall asleep. I can't remember at what age this started, but I'm curious where this behavior could come from. It does feel comforting in some way. There's a clue. Put that over here in the little clue space, right? In these scenarios, I imagine I'm accidentally hurting myself, like falling down the stairs at school or falling from a horse. In most scenarios, I'll hurt myself so bad that people are calling an ambulance for me. Put that over in the interesting information sp spot there. 
I'll play the whole scenario in my head. The accident, possible injuries, people helping me, the ambulance arriving, the way the first responders react, how I'll react. In these scenarios, I don't hurt myself on purpose. It's always being at the wrong place at the wrong time. In real life, I've never needed an ambulance, me neither. Knock on wood for that. And I really hope I don't need one in the future. I struggle with social anxiety and I find it hard when people are concerned about me. And that's, that is just what's happening in these scenarios. Greetings from the Netherlands. And there was a comment in this as well that was kind of where my brain was going. That's why I love when you guys uh, comment back because you often already, we, you think the way I think. So a couple of things. Now, the fact that you struggle with social anxiety and you have a tough time having people be concerned about you, this can, what's the word I'm looking for? Almost like color our entire childhood, if it was present then. Okay, just hang with me. If we grew up with, with social anxiety, I have many friends and uh, patients of mine over the years who've struggled with social anxiety, like since they were children, like they remember being little and feeling stressed. So they're feeling anxious. Um, if that's the case, then you never allowed people to truly show up for you and care for you because it was too overwhelming. It might make you shut down. You might have a panic attack. You might have cried, screamed, right? Therefore, you never really got the emotional support or physical support that you really needed. We could have felt neglected and maybe not out of our parents not wanting to be there, but rather because when they would try to show up for us, we were like, I don't want it, right? So we have these dream scenarios, which I know sound crazy to call them dream scenarios, but that's what they are of us getting hurt and people being able to come to our aid. And I'd assume that in your anxious brain, somewhere it's it's okay if people come to help you when you need medical attention, because these all are ways that you get hurt. None of these are things like where you get emotionally hurt, like so not someone's not yelling at you and then you cry and run to a parent or uh, someone comes to comfort you. Maybe you don't even know that. But we don't have those scenarios, right? That's not what's coming up for you. It's actual medical things, like you're actually injured physically. So I'm curious if that's the time or the only time that you feel it's okay or you're able to accept that support. Does that make sense? And that that leads me into the fact that I think that that's where this is coming from, that you're wanting more comfort and support from people, but you might not know how to accept it or to allow it in. And so we're having these scenarios every night as a way to kind of get that need met even though we're not able to give it to ourselves and no one in our life, we won't allow them to either. And so my overall advice is to, I know you're in the Netherlands and I know systems of care are shitty everywhere, but I would encourage you to get on some lists and get into therapy as soon as possible. We need to manage that social anxiety a little bit better, get you some more treatment for that so that that nervousness or overwhelm that you can feel by receiving any attention is kind of assuaged. It's brought down to a level where you can allow for the support emotionally and physically that you truly need. It's, it's interesting how we can kind of fight it. We can sabotage ourselves without realizing it, right? And our mental illnesses and mental health issues can get in the way of that. And it sounds like your social anxiety has prevented you from getting the support that you so desperately need and deserve. And so instead of being able to, instead of working it through, because we don't have the tools, right? There's no shame on, like, we're not supposed to know how to fix it. That's what therapists are for. Because of that lack of helpful knowledge and tools, we're doing it the only way we can with these fake scenarios before we go to bed. And it's comforting and it's soothing because you finally are getting that attention, that support, and that comfort that you so desperately need. And remember, attention is not a bad word. We all need attention. 
I know we've turned it into like, oh, they're just doing it for attention. So humans need attention. It's like how we're wired. The connection with others soothes our nervous system. So fuck yeah, we all need attention. There's no judgment there, okay? But you're doing what you can to get that need met. And good on you. Hey, you've, you've made it this far. Give yourself a little pat on the back. But I want you to get it in a real way. I want you to get that support, that attention, that, you know, compassion that you've been needing. Um, and so we're going to have to get into therapy and manage that social anxiety so we're able to receive it. Okay. Now, there was a comment on this that said, bouncing off of this, I always run scenarios in my head of something terrible happening to me, like being trafficked or being in a hostage situation or things like that. I'm always the one sacrificing myself in these scenarios for others. I don't like these as they take away from be me being in the present. Why would I be doing this? And how do I stop doing this? Thanks a bunch from Oregon. Um, another Pacific Northwesterner. Hi. Sorry, there's something on my eyeball. If you're watching this, it's, if that bothers you, I apologize. I'm just trying to get it out of there. Um, but I would... This is different, but similar. I'm interested because you running these scenarios, something terrible happening, and you sacrifice yourself for others. And I have a couple of questions because I think this could be coming from a couple of places. Number one, it could be the fact that just like the first person who asked the question, that we're needing that support, that attention, and probably some respect or adoration, which isn't bad either, right? It's all human need. Um, and in so like this is why that that's the way the scenarios play out for us is it gets those needs met again. I also wonder if we've never felt like people respected us or gave us any attention. And so the way that we think we can get that is through being the hero. And I'm curious. That's why I'm like, I have questions because I'm curious if any of that rings true for you or if you've ever felt like in your life you were just always overlooked. It, like my little spidey senses of therapist spidey senses says that I wonder if you're a middle child or if you have uh, another sibling in your family who was like higher needs than you. Because a lot of this just screams to me that you you put other people first and you want to be the one to save everybody. I'm curious if you're a people pleaser. I just have a lot of questions. It could come from any place like that. But again, I think it comes from our past. It comes from the way that we were raised and something, some need that didn't get met. I think the need is something around like attention, affection, um, validation. In this case, it might be, you know, maybe needing a little bit more respect. Maybe we're put down a lot in our family. Um, but working through that in therapy and finding ways to offer it up to ourselves and other scenarios where people have offered it to us like attention let's say for instance I'll give an example like one of my patients was severely emotionally neglected her parents were both like these high power attorneys they were never home and she was pretty much raised by like babysitters and nannies and that left her having a slew of really unhealthy relationships uh, people who would like be unavailable because that was what was normal and comfortable right and she'd have these kind of daydreams about being like uh, like the woman in distress and someone to come and save her. Anyway, part of the work that we had to do for her was to find ways to be consistent. So having a routine was really healing for her because no one had ever consistently shown up for her. So we worked on her showing up for herself and then being very particular about her relationships. So we would purposefully, I would have her seek out people who she thought were kind of boring and I mean that in the most loving way because for her, that comfortability with people who were super toxic, people who wouldn't show up, they were inconsistent. She felt like she was always chasing them, but that was like exciting for her. I thought that wasn't healthy. That was just repeating the relationship with her parents. 
So instead, I was like, I really want you to try to find a relationship that's kind of boring and somebody who is just always there and you might even find it annoying. And she did. Um, we found a couple of friends, not not dating relationships yet at this point. A couple of friends who just like, hey, every Friday we go out and do blah, 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 blah. Do you want to go do that? And she would say, yeah, but she really didn't. But I pushed her to do it and it ended up being incredibly healing. Slow, but incredibly healing. It takes time to change those patterns. But I feel like there's a piece of this in there probably for the person who asked the first part of this question and the second part. Um, yeah, there's a need that you that isn't getting met in other ways or wasn't met as a child. And so we're trying to meet it through these kind of daydreams or scenarios that we run through in our heads. Very normal. And again, give yourself a pat on the back. Kudos for getting me through, but it's not really serving us anymore. So we're going to want to find a way to not need it anymore. Again, we're not going to try to shut it down or stop them. That's not going to help. We have to figure out the root of it. Where is it coming from? What need is this meeting? Um, and that's where the work starts. Okay. Okay, let's move on to question number four. And this question says, hey, Katie, and let me get a drink of water here. Hey, Katie, I've been working with my therapist for a few years now, on and off since COVID. And I've got a topic I need to talk about and work through, but I just can't say what I'm feeling or thinking about it. It's like I can't get out what's in my head and it's really frustrating. I go away from sessions beating myself up and how I can't speak about it. I'm so torn about it all the time. It was the only, or it was only last week, my therapist said straight up that I was abused, both emotionally and physically. Could this be why I can't talk about it? Hmm. What would you suggest that I do? Thanks for all you do. Of course. Now, there was a comment on this that I, I agreed with, and I want to mention it here. It's not a therapist's job to tell us what has happened to us, meaning you shouldn't be telling me, oh, I'm feeling this way or that way. And I'm like, aha, you were abused, right? Unless you've shared with me some suspicions of abuse, some flashes of memory you have that are abuse, even then I might just say, it sounds like post-traumatic stress disorder. Do you think there have been any traumas? You know, we don't, what we don't ever want to do as therapists is we don't want to tell you what has happened and call it something that you wouldn't call it because we don't want to like create memories for you that aren't there. You remember that like debacle? It was in like the 80s. I want to say maybe late 80s, early 90s where a therapist, I think they got like, I don't know if they got sued. They lost their license for sure. But they had been telling all these people in their practice that they were abused um, by their fathers and ruining families, ruining people's lives. And none of it was true. They were just fabricating it, injecting memories into people's brains. Now, and I say injecting, it's not obviously exactly what happened, but like leading patients to believe that what they thought, meaning they, the therapist, thought happened was what happened. This is very dangerous and completely unethical and I believe illegal at this point because I do believe that they were like, it was a court case. They lost their license. I think they had to pay damages, um, which is fair. So I want to make sure that your therapist said this because you've brought up scenarios of abuse or situations in which you believe were abuse, but you just can't call them that, okay? <clears throat> because it is normal to struggle to talk about certain things. It can be really hard for us to be honest about what we're going through and to call it what it is. I don't know what it is about the terms. Sometimes the using the proper term can be really triggering or feel because we've spent our whole life invalidating our experience or minimizing it to survive, then when we go into therapy and we're like, I guess I was sexually abused. That feels like too strong of a word. It almost, it just, it's like, 
it doesn't feel right. Do you know what I mean? It almost can feel icky or like like it doesn't quite compute. It doesn't make sense. It's it's like cognitive dissonance, right? Like I believe one thing, but I also believe the other and these can't coexist. Ah, it's really, really hard. And that takes time. I want you to know that process is normal. My encouragement for you, first of all, is I want to make sure your therapist isn't putting, pretending to know more than you've told them, trying to create memories or situations that we don't know for sure existed. And two, start writing. Do you think writing could be the way in? It's very normal to not be able to say it out loud for a while. But I do think keeping a journal and jotting down, if it even if it's not like full sentences, if it's bullet points or thoughts, I don't even care what your journal looks like. I just want you to start trying to get some of this out. That could be kind of our first step in, our first way. Because you said you don't even, um, like thinking about it is hard. You can't say what you're feeling or thinking about. It might be a little tricky, but I want you to keep trying. I want you to, at the very least, talk about like what comes up for you in therapy that makes you shut down. How does that feel? We can start there. Sometimes if it's hard for us to get into the actual memories or get into the actual terminology or the language around what happened to us, it can be beneficial to start with how we feel now. Also, I know that's hard. None of what I'm telling you is easy work, but it's important and it will be worthwhile because as we kind of, what we're doing, I always like to think of it as like through trauma, we've built this like really thick brick wall and it might even be like three, four bricks thick. Then every time we try to talk in therapy, we're like just eroding a little bit at some of the cement or whatever they call it that holds the bricks together. I'm not a bricklayer. I don't know what it's called. Or removing one brick at a time as we start trying to put language to it, as we start writing it out, as we start acknowledging what we feel. And it's hard. It's, it's a, a labor. It's a, a huge laborious process. But it does get better. It does get easier as we take them down brick by brick until we're at a place where even if there's just a little a little hole through where we can see to the other side. And that could be with our therapist where we're like, I can share about this and that's it. I can't share about this other stuff, but I can share about that. And slowly as we keep sharing, that hole will get larger and larger and we'll be able and feel more safe and okay, or at least neutral sharing about what took place. But I want you to know it's okay. It's normal. Let's start trying to find other ways in and not focus so much on the talking with our therapist. And I'd let your therapist know that you're struggling to say these things and even say, like, I don't know, I'm going to try journaling. Maybe that could help. Um, do you allow emails in between sessions that you don't reply to, but I send out? Because we could move into that where then it's not just journaling. We're actually sending it to someone. You know, there's some things that we can do just to get it out and know that it's going to another person can be healing as well. But yes, um, abuse could be the reason why you can't talk about it. But again, I don't want them jumping to conclusions and telling you that without having knowledge of it. That sounds very scary to me. Now, there was a comment that as an add-on, how can one maybe start with practicing to talk about something? I feel like I just answered that. I had something in childhood around four or six, I don't really know exactly, that made me very ashamed. I'm in my 20s and I think that I'm still affected. Someone suggested therapy and I have to admit I'm curious and terrified because I don't talk about myself that much normally. Most people don't. Anyway, I tried to organize my thoughts on this and verbalize my problem. In writing, it works somewhat. Good, good. But if I try to say something out loud, even to read from the paper, I just can't do it. That's okay. It takes time. I prepare a sentence in my head, but I can't say it. Not even when I'm alone. My mind goes blank and I get stressed out. What is that? The thing is not even that bad. It is bad to you. I want to stop there because I don't want you minimizing. 
it might not be that bad to somebody else, but it's bad to you. And what's happening is it's a PTSD response, but possibly kind of like a low form of dissociation because you you like your mind goes blank. You're like, boop, you kind of check out. It's too emotionally charged for you. So the thing is not even that bad objectively. It's not abuse or anything. Look at you comparing. Comparison is always going to be a bad thing. It just got stuck in my head the wrong way. How do I go to therapy for something that apparently I can't even talk about? Is there a way to practice? You're doing great. The writing and the the thinking about it and doing that is great. Um, I would encourage you to work. So what's we're going to, along with what I'd said earlier about, you know, keep continuing to write, thinking about it. You can try practicing saying it out loud. All of that's going to be helpful along the way. But what we're missing here is what I would call a resource or a coping skill. We need to have some tools to calm your system down because you're getting overwhelmed. You're dysregulated. You're going through it and then you're like, oh, and your brain's like, I'm pulling the ripcord, right? So it's just too much for us. So we know that's happening. I want you, if you're able, the next set of homework would be to gauge your emotional fullness or dysregulation level. Meaning when you start working on this, I'm sure you're already at least at a five, right? Zero is like, I'm asleep, catatonic. 10 is when you like go blank, boop, you like completely like check out. And we want you to stay between a five and like a seven. And that's like the sweet spot where you can still do this work, still remember things, write them out, maybe try to say them out loud without pushing yourself out. And so when you start to creep up into that seven, that's when we use our coping skills. Those can be things like a full body shake that could be like distracting. Maybe we have to go for a walk around the block. Maybe we, uh, you know, pet our dog or our kitty cat or whatever. Maybe, you know, we make some dinner, clean up something, watch a TV show, play a video game. We pull ourselves out. Maybe we talk to a friend, text about something not related. We get ourselves out of it and then we come back to it. Now, these distraction techniques or tools are not things for you to like never come back to what you're working on. This is like do it for like five or 10 minutes till you feel the level of stress go down to like a five or lower. Start it again. And then we're just going to do it. It's like we're working a muscle. Think of it like doing like push-ups, right? We we notice that we're at a seven and we take a break because our arms are tired and we come back and we try to do another one. Okay, we go down, we go up. Okay, arms are tired, have to take a break. And we're just building it until we can do more than one push-up, until we can actually start verbalizing things. And it will take time. And I have a video called 25 Coping Skills. So if you go into YouTube, put 25 Coping Skills, Katie Morton, it'll come up and that can be a great place to get you started thinking about some resources or coping skills to help you. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. Question number five says, hey, Katie, I hope you're doing well. I am. I hope you're doing well. It says, is there a name for when someone experiences symptoms of depression for 10 to 14 days? Occasionally, I will feel unmotivated, exhausted, withdrawn, and struggle to enjoy typical hobbies. These episodes never last longer than two weeks and happen a few times a year. I also deal with dissociation on a daily basis. Thank you for being such a great mental health resource. resource. I love the community you've built. Of course, I'm glad you're part of it. Now, a couple of thoughts. First of all, in order for us to be diagnosed, and this we're talking diagnostics, okay? This is just, that's why I have my DSM out. We're talking just what's in the, the DSM slash, you know, what health insurances go through and ICD-11, what they categorize mental illnesses as. Is it the end-all be-all? No. Is it kind of trash? Sometimes, yes. So when it comes to major depressive disorder, the symptoms 
have to last for two weeks. That's it. So when it lasts for 14 days, boom, you've met the criteria for major depressive disorder. Obviously, if as long as you have those other symptoms. So you'll feel you have a lower depressed mood. I actually even page marked the the book so that we could I could easily take you through it. Now, when it comes to major depressive disorder, we have to have five or more of the following symptoms, as well as these two, a depressed mood and a loss of interest or pleasure, which is known as anhedonia. And then the others are like, um, you know, weight loss or gain, sleeping not at all, sleeping too much, like changes in our sleep, psychomotor agitation, meaning like you feel really agitated, or they call it psychomotor retardation when you're like, don't, you're really lethargic, fatigue, loss of energy, feelings of worthlessness, uh, difficulty with concentration, and recurrent thoughts of death. Now that's for depression. If you have, you know, five or more and including those first two, meaning so you have to have those two and then three, really, then it's major depressive disorder. If you don't feel like it's that, if that doesn't seem to fit, this is why we need to see a professional to ensure that we get properly diagnosed and treated. It could be dysthymia or persistent depressive disorder, meaning that it's like a low-grade depression for most days for two years. So again, we're not looking for like 14 days of consistent depression. We're just looking for most days for two years. Now, I have videos about all of these if you want to dig into the criteria, but could be major depressive disorder. Sounds like that might be what it is. Could be persistent depressive disorder, or it could be what's known as other specified depressive disorder, which is kind of like this catch-all for when we don't quite meet the criteria for others. And that's kind of why I'm telling you that like, the DSM is helpful, but it's not the end-all be-all. And sometimes it fucking sucks, right? And it doesn't meet us where we're at. It doesn't describe what's going on. And we can feel lost with it, but it could be that other specified one. And so the fact that you said you feel unmotivated, exhausted, withdrawn, and struggle to enjoy your typical hobbies, to me, that sounds like depression. It's like quintessential. Like I feel like we're checking the boxes of major depressive disorder. Um but, you know, seeing a therapist, seeing a mental health professional will ensure that you're properly diagnosed so that you can get the treatment that will work best for you so that you can start to feel better. Because depression is incredibly common. I've, I've gone through it when I was, how old was I, like 15, 16? Um, just having a hard time, right? And it can get better. I was in therapy. Um, I was on medication for a short period of time for, I think, six months. So know that a lot of people go through it. You can overcome it. You can feel better. We just need to get you the right treatment and support. So hang in there. And the fact that you also deal with dissociation, there might be PTSD stuff going on there. Let your therapist know and just know you can feel better, okay? Let's move on to question number six. And this question says, hey, Katie, could you possibly talk about the symptom overlap between complex PTSD and ASD, which you guys know stands for Autism Spectrum Disorder? As someone with both diagnoses, I wish I could understand the root of my struggles. Are my emotional, now it says emotional FBS, I'm assuming that means flashbacks. I'm not sure if I'm wrong, let me know. But are my emotional flashbacks meltdowns? Is social socially isolating myself due to interpersonal trauma or my autism spectrum disorder? Is my strong aversion to touch and extreme difficulty making eye contact from one or the other? Thanks for everything you do. Now, I went and looked at the diagnostic criteria. I have the DSM obviously out here for ASD. And I have to say, other than the, the few that you mentioned here, there's not a ton of overlap, but I do think they could feed into one another. Okay, so hang with me. Now, when it comes to complex PTSD, the difficulty with people 
uh, touching us or being around us a lot or maybe even making eye contact is that it becomes, it's like a, it feels scary and too risky. Meaning that we feel under threat. We don't feel safe doing so. And it can cause us to dissociate. Now, I'm sure my ASD folks out there will tell me, hey, I've dissociated too when I have meltdowns. But I want you to understand that when we have autism, that means that it's like, the best way I can describe it is like anything sensorily that's coming into us, meaning all five senses, is almost like it's not running this this clear wire. It's like a frayed wire. So it's like everything can feel very overwhelming. We can become really easily dysregulated. Hence why people, you know, rock and do, and I'm probably going to say it wrong again, but it's I think it's stemming behavior or st- I don't know if it's S-T-I-M or S-T-E-M. I forget and I apologize. I say it wrong every time. So now I'm second guessing myself. Okay, I took a minute to look it up and it is S-T-I-M-M-I-N-G. I just, I always am worried I'm getting it wrong. And so I apologize, you guys, if that's offensive. I don't mean it in that way. It's just people keep telling me. And so I always second guess myself. Okay. But people do that kind of behavior, these repetitive motions as a way to to calm and to manage their nervous system. And so that kind of behavior, in my experience, is not part of complex PTSD. But I think the emotional flashbacks, it depends on, so if it's a flashback, if you feel like you're back in a scenario, that's not a meltdown. That's PTSD related. Do you see how I'm teasing this out? So take some time and think about these because only you are going to know what you experience. Don't let any mental health professional tell you that they know what it is. They should be asking questions, being curious, letting you answer it properly, okay, and figure it out for yourself. So if we're having a flashback and we feel like it's happening again or we're pulled into this old scenario, it can feel like we're watching a film of ourselves doing something. It can feel like we're flipping through a photo book. All of that is PTSD related. So I put that in the complex PTSD bucket. If we feel so uncomfortable in our skin, so much is happening, it feels like the world is very loud and uncomfortable. And so we are so dysregulated. We just feel we like might scream, we might cry, we might have to leave a scenario. That's more of a meltdown. Now, isolating yourself that one's a little tricky. I guess you'd have to tell me what the cause is. And I'm sure each individual time you've isolated will have a different, you know, reason behind it. But when it comes to PTSD, it would be because it doesn't feel safe. It's too stressful to be out because we can't keep looking around. The hypervigilance is intense. Now, ASD doesn't come with that hypervigilance. It does come with feeling like, you know, situations are too overwhelming, like sensory overload. So again, you're going to have to tease out where that's coming from for you. And then the aversion to touch and the difficulty making eye contact. Now, eye contact in particular, I would probably put more in the ASD bucket because that is kind of one of the quintessential symptoms of it. But again, you're going to have to consider for yourself in an honest way, is this because I fear for my safety or is this because it's like unnatural and it feels uncomfortable for me to do? It feels I feel like, uh, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but the autistic folks in our community have shared that like making eye contact just, it it's not natural. If it doesn't, it's like they don't even realize that they're not doing it. But with my complex PTSD folks, they would tell me that they just feel like it's impossible to, they can't. Like it's uncomfortable. It feels too risky. They feel too vulnerable to do it. Does that make sense? So, so each of these, we're going to have to be honest with ourselves and what the experience is like for us 
in order to answer those questions. And it might differ, you know, moment to moment, which could be like, if you're not already seeing someone who specializes in ASD or a trauma-informed or trauma specialist, I think ASD would be more important to have someone who specializes in that because we are not trained in school to be able to treat it. It's something very specialized. Um, I mean, you could say trauma is similar, but more so I'd want you to see someone who actually understands that and they should be able to help you tease that out and help you better understand your experience and offer some coping skills and ways to work with, not against your brain. Because every time I look up the ASD diagnostic criteria, I always feel bad about it. I don't think it belongs in the DSM. I feel like it belongs as a different type of issue altogether. And it's it's almost like ADHD in the way that we just have to work with our brains. Our brains just work differently. It's not, you know, nothing's wrong with us. It's just working with, not against, you know? But anyways, I hope that's helpful. Take your time teasing that out, figuring out where it's coming from for you. Um, and know with the, the right support and taking your time, it will get better, okay? Let's move on to question number seven. This question says, hey, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, how do I deal with feeling like I have to start over again and again due to my mental illness? I'm 26 now and still working on getting my bachelor's degree. I had to twice take a semester off to go inpatient for my eating disorder, and everyone I knew in university is already done with their degree. I also had to give up my job every time, rebuild my social relationships, and start over at my hobbies. Now, I finally found a job that I really love, and I could be finished with my degree by the end of this year. But my eating disorder has gotten really out of hand again, and my therapist wants me to go inpatient. I don't know if I can deal with the feeling of failing again, having to start over again, and falling behind everyone. How do I decide whether to go inpatient or to get my degree first? How do I deal with the consequences of whatever decision I choose to make, getting even sicker or having to start over again? Sorry for the long and rambly message, and thank you for all that you do. Of course. Okay. I had to take a big sigh because I have a lot of thoughts about this. I get really frustrated, not with you, but with society and this belief that everything comes with a certain timeline, like that we're supposed to do everything within, you know, this very rigid, I don't know, set of years. You're 26. I know, okay, when I was 26, I thought I was way older than I was. I'm just here to tell you, you've got a lot of fucking time. And the one thing I do know is that if we don't get you well, you'll keep having to do this. You'll keep having to restart. What would it matter if you got your degree by the end of this year? Or if we took a couple of months off, went to treatment, came back and finished a semester later. Now, I know that seems like a big deal to you, but I'm just here to tell you that if your health isn't good, you and I both know our eating disorders steal our concentration and our recall, which really affects our schooling. I can't tell you how many of my patients restrictive or binging or binging purging, whatever, any eating disorder behavior, their grades will suffer. Now, if you happen to be on the more restrictive type A type of thing, you're like, no, 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 I do fine. I'm here to tell you that your body cannot take that kind of stress for that long. It's February and you're thinking the end of this year, we're just starting this year. You really should, I can't encourage you enough to take the time and to go get better because you're worth it. And it, you'll take the time now, put in the work now, to figure out where your eating disorder is coming from. Because the reason that we're continuing to relapse and continuing to have to go into treatment is because we've never really worked through the purpose. So be honest with yourself. Do we know where it's coming from? Do we have a suspicion? Is there a place in therapy that we will never allow ourselves to go? 
I know it's uncomfortable. Trust me, I've done my own therapeutic work and it's fucking hard and it's terrible and, it, and you don't want to do it. And then the homework is really hard, but it's worth it. You're worth it. So be honest with yourself. Let's see if we can get into that root and let's rip it out because then we can heal from our eating disorder. We can have real tools to help us manage and to feel better. And then we can go finish our degree and we won't have to keep doing this stop, start, restart kind of thing. And sorry, my dog is crying because she really, Sean just left and she's missing him already. Um, but I would really encourage you to go inpatient because your health has to come first. Otherwise, the, uh, you know, the other things won't fall in line. We can't finish our degree. And then even if you do, you have to start over then anyway, like you'd have to go back into treatment. And I do want to challenge you, maybe it's just a therapist to me, but even as I said that, start over, that feels like a hard, a harsh word for what's really happening, which is I'm taking care of myself. So I want you to reframe that versus saying that you have to start over and over and over due to your mental illness. It's not that you have to start over. You're not losing ground. I know it can feel like that, but you're actually gaining education about yourself. You know, you're, you're gaining recovery and you're going to be better. And so we're just taking care of ourselves. We're taking the time needed to put our health first. You got this. I know it's hard, but do that deep, dark, hard work. And I promise you that will give you the best possible outcome and hopefully stop us from potentially having, you know, another relapse and having to go back into treatment. That will that will stop this from happening again. Okay. Okay, let's move on to question number eight. That question says, hey, Katie, how can I cope with my therapist being neutral? Hmm. You know how you sometimes will say, I want to punch them, the abusers, in the face? Yes, or in the throat or anywhere. Yes. I really wish my therapist was like that. Instead, she's neutral and tells me to, the focus of therapy is on me and not on third parties. Okay, I, I, okay, let's just dig into this. She refused to call the person who made my life hell bad. What? And explain that we don't know why he did it or if it was intentional. What? That's super invalidating. What the fuck? Okay, we don't know why he did it or if it was intentional or even if there was there were mitigating circumstances. What? She didn't volunteer her opinion easily, but I really needed to know that. She never, never minimized my feelings, but that hurt a lot. Yeah, that feels very invalidating. I struggled to let go of the wish that my therapist would simply stop being so neutral. How can I let go of this wish? I tend to minimize my trauma and this approach doesn't help. I should add that we already discussed this issue at length and I don't intend to switch therapists. Okay. So, and she's not going to budge. Now there is a, uh, it depends on this, how the therapist functions. So all therapists are people, right? And we all have different types of therapy that we prefer to practice and do things we specialize in and don't. And there is there's a chunk of therapists who believe in this neutrality. I truly believe in there. I might there might be other types of therapy, but the first one that comes to mind is more of the psychoanalytic, which is like this older style. Nobody, I mean not nobody. People still practice it, but it's not I don't believe it's effective. It takes way 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 too long, like years. You need to go you have therapy all. It's very expensive cuz you're supposed to go multiple times a week. It's essentially like the old Freudian style, okay? And there's tons of research to support that it doesn't work, but people still believe that it does, and that's fine. To each their own. If it helps one person, no judgment. But in that type, in that style, in pure psychoanalytic theory, a therapist is supposed to remain neutral 
and not offer any feedback, which I find appalling personally, okay? Not my style, not my personality, not how I think therapy should work. Now, to each their own, right? Therapy is an art form. It's, you know, there's a ton of different modalities for a reason. But a lot of people, you know, that I assume that that's where they come from, that it should be neutral, that they don't offer any feedback. I don't know why that they would even say that we don't know why he did it. Like if a person was harmful to you, I feel like the role of the therapist is to validate and support that and to say, I'm so sorry that happened. At the very least, that sounds terrible. I can't believe someone did that. You know, we don't have to call them an asshole like I do. I might be a little more abrasive. It's just different style of person, right? But this, I don't know, this like neutrality slash see both sides kind of feels exhausting and hurtful to me. So I guess the work for you since we don't want to switch, and we've already talked at length with her about it, the work for you is to find ways to offer yourself that support and validation. Meaning, homework would be, you're going to have to journal. I know, not everybody loves it, but I can't think of another way for this to happen. We're going to have to journal out what we wish she would have said, and we need to start saying it to ourselves. And that might mean we have to use bridge statements if we don't believe it. So instead of her saying, like, we don't know why he did it or if it was intentional, what if instead she was like, I fucking hate that guy. I'd like to punch him in the face, spit on his feet, whatever. Okay, so can we say that to ourselves? Can we validate our experience? Yeah, that was really hard. That felt terrible. I'd like to punch that guy in the face. What an asshole. I don't even care where his int- what his intent was. It hurt me and I'm mad about it. Because that expression of anger, I think for you in particular and for a lot of us, is validating when we need it and forces us not to minimize what took place. And so we, but again, might be bridge statements. So instead of being able to say like, that guy was such a jackass, I can't believe that happened. We might have to say, you know, I I just, I, I'm going to believe, I'm going to try to acknowledge that what he did was really hurtful and I'm angry about it. Or if we can't even get there, it might be like, I'm, I do feel hurt or I'm open to the belief that I could express my anger about this. It has really affected me. Or I'm open to believing it could affect me, right? I don't know where you'll fall and like what feels real or not or true or not true. But I want you to meet yourself there. And so we're going to have to offer that to ourselves instead of looking for it from our therapist. And I do agree with your therapist that like we can't be looking out for people to validate our experience all the time. I think it's helpful in us growing a healthy, not just self-esteem, but like a trust in oneself. I think, I think that's why I do that as a therapist, but others want you, you know, don't want to offer that and would rather you do it on your own. And I get that. I just feel like they needed to have a little more support and guidance toward that. And so that's what I think this kind of journaling, saying it to ourselves, using bridge statements where necessary, can, it can get us there and it can offer us what we really need, which is someone to acknowledge the pain, validate it instead of minimize it or disregard it. Okay. I hope that helps. And I'm sorry you're going through that. That Again, I'm just, yeah, I'm the different type of therapist. Okay. Finally, question number nine says, hey, Katie, how important would you say that a feeling of hope is in therapy? What role does it play for th- recovery and for the therapeutic process in general? And in my case in particular, I've been in therapy for complex PTSD since last summer, and it took me years of struggling to find proper help. And during those years, I basically had to focus on surviving day by day, hour by hour. I'm so sorry. 
And it struck me a couple of months back that during those years, I lost hope that it could get better, I know, and developed a strong feeling of hopelessness. Am I even worth helping? Mm, I'm so sorry. My patients with suicidal thoughts go through this a lot. My therapist keeps reminding me that it can get better, but that it will take time. However, as I've told her, this feeling of hopelessness is so deeply ingrained in me that a big part of me has not yet realized that I'm actually in therapy, that I'm in the process of getting help that I've struggled so hard to find. Is this common and something you've seen in your clinical practice? Yes. Thank you for all that you do. Of course. Incredibly common. Um, I'd say 50% of the time I have patients who feel this way. Because it really just depends on what we're going through and why we could... It's depression, trauma, uh, shame, anything even anxiety. A lot of my patients can have this kind of helpless, hopeless feeling. And especially if we've been trying to get better for a while and it just hasn't been working. Um, Like the patient who's uh, the person who asked a question earlier about eating disorder treatment. I have a lot of patients who, you know, they relapse and they're like, is it even worth it? Am I going to get better ever? You can really struggle with hope at all. And it's important in therapy, but it doesn't mean that therapy can't be beneficial. You're still getting the help that you need. It's just changing this thought process it's it's breaking a pattern because the pattern of thoughts is it's never going to get better you know it's like we, we can spiral out real quick and i don't know where it starts there's probably a few like five or six very common thoughts you have that spiral you into this it'll never get better so my advice for you is to start tracking your thoughts a little bit it's a cbt technique where we just write down some common thoughts not every thought we have but pay attention to them. Start jotting them down or even recording them in voice memos to yourself or something just to keep track of them. And when you come across one, that, let's say you've been doing it for two or three days and you come across one that keeps popping up over and over. Um, common ones are usually things like, especially in this case, it's never going to get better. I'm so worthless. I'm so lazy. Um, this is just how I'm going to have to be. I don't know. If you find a thought that's repetitive, I want you to write that one down and I want you to start arguing back with facts that we're checking, bridge statements, right? I want you to start looking because what we're trying to do, I like to think of it, the analogy that I always have used in my practice is like depression or hopelessness, helplessness is like we're walking in like a big, I don't know why I envision walking in like a big pipe, like a sewer, not stinky or dirty or gross or anything like that, but just dark, right? And you don't know where the end is. And you're walking through this dark, dark hole, right? And you don't, you can't see, you're just walking. And it feels really hopeless because you're like, am I ever going to get out of here? And you look back and it's dark. You, you like, I don't even know where to go. But I want you to look for the little glimmers of light. I want you to find your, you know, your lighter, your match. And I want you to try to find, just, we're seeking it out. We want to look for that little, even if it's just a blip, it's light for a bit, it goes out. And that's what these different thoughts are going to be, these challenges, these facts. When, you know, one argument would be, you know, people recover from this all the time. I can tell you that that is true. If anybody feels safe to share, you can share in the comments how you overcame this on your own. Because sometimes you need to know that it's happened for other people. I've seen it personally, but, you know, maybe others in our community can share theirs as well. So it can get better. It's gotten better for other people. I've got faith. That can be hard to come by too, but I'm just throwing something out. That could be a little spark. I might go out. We might not light a torch yet, right? But we're looking for those little sparks. Sparks from other people's experience. Sparks from our experience. Did we have just a minute, maybe a brief like moment where we believed it could have gotten better? Just for a second, we felt a little bit of hope. Let's tap into that. Let's pay attention to that. You know, 
give yourself time. It's a new muscle. We have to fight back. Medication can also help. I know not everyone's open to it, but sometimes we're drowning, right? We're in the darkness. We need someone to light that torch for us. And medication can sometimes do that. Especially if we feel like we can't even participate in therapy, that could be, you know, a benefit. Um, there's a ton of treatment depending on where you live for complex PTSD in particular. When it comes to like psilocybin, there's ketamine treatments, there's all sorts of different ways that we can go about treating our depression or our complex PTSD symptoms. Um, I'd encourage you to look into that, but hang in there. Track those thoughts, pay attention to them, see if there's repetition in them. Let's argue back a little bit. Even if we're not, you know, we're just, it's a new muscle. If it doesn't feel like a real argument, that's okay. You're just doing the best you can with what you have. Be supportive and loving of yourself as best you can, okay? We'll get you there, little by little. And it does get better. This is incredibly common. Don't think that it's hopeless or helpless. Just take it from me and know that I've seen it happen. I'm sure people have left things in the comments. It's gotten better for them. It can get better for you. Okay? Thank you all so much for all of your questions. I hope all of my answers were helpful. Thank you for your understanding that I don't specialize in autism spectrum disorder. That's why I want to look things up and do the best that I can. If I spoke incorrectly about that, please educate me in those comments as well. I love you all. Have a wonderful rest of your week, and I'll see you next time. Bye.